Well, today we're going to discover how God accomplishes his purposes through persecution. Now, when we think about persecution, we usually think of believers in close countries or perhaps what happens to missionaries. Let me share with you a true story. In 1921, a missionary couple named David and Svia Flood went from Sweden to the Belgian Congo in Africa. They met up with another couple. Their last name was Erickson. And they felt led by the Lord to go out from the main mission station and take the gospel to an unreached remote area. When they arrived at the village, they were rebuffed by the chief who would not let them enter his town for fear of alienating the local gods. The two couples opted to go half a mile up the slope where they built their own mud huts. They prayed for a spiritual breakthrough, but there was none. The only contact with the villagers was a young boy who was allowed to sell them chickens and eggs twice a week. Well, Svia Flood decided if this was the only African she could talk to, she would try to lead the boy to faith in Jesus. She succeeded, but there was no other fruit. Meanwhile, malaria struck. In time, the Eriksons decided that they had had enough suffering and they left to return to the central mission station. David and Svia Flood remained near the village in their mud hut up on the slope where they went on alone. Svia found herself pregnant in the middle of that primitive wilderness, and when the time came for her to give birth, the village chief softened enough to allow a midwife to help her deliver a little girl who they named Anna. The delivery was exhausting, and Svia Flood was already weak from bouts of malaria. She died 17 days later. And something snapped inside David Flood. He dug a crude grave and buried his wife. And he came down the mountain to the mission station and he gave his newborn daughter to the Ericsons. And before leaving, he snarled these words I'm going back to Sweden. I've lost my wife and I obviously can't take care of this baby. God has ruined my life. And with that, he headed for the port, rejecting not only his calling, but God himself. Within eight months, both the Ericsons died within days of each other. The baby was then turned over to some American missionaries who adjusted her Swedish name to Aggie and eventually brought her to the United States. Her adopted dad became a pastor and Aggie grew up in South Dakota. She attended North Central Bible College where she met and married a man named Dewey Hurst. But we're going to pick up the rest of the story 
at the end of the message. But remember this truth. God accomplishes his purposes through persecution. If you have a Bible with you, and I hope you're in the practice of doing that, open that up to the book of Acts. And I want to point out, as we begin, a passage from Acts chapter 21, verses 12 and 13. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, please take that one as our gift to you. Uh, Feel free to download our mobile app. If you don't have that, you can get to the Bible on there digitally or use another um, app that you have. Acts chapter 21, verses 12 and 13. So the context here, Paul had been warned, that was last week, He's been warned to not go to Jerusalem. He'd been warned by a prophet that bad things were going to happen there. And then a number of his friends said, Paul, don't go. Let's pick it up. Chapter 21, verse 12. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Check out verse 13. Then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Well, let's pick up the narrative now in verse 27, where we're going to see three ways to handle hardship. First of all, we're called to endure misunderstanding. Now, you do know this, don't you, if you choose to follow Christ? you're going to have to deal with people misunderstanding you. You're going to have to deal with some misinformation, perhaps, even being spread about you. Listen now, verses 27 through 29, when the seven days were almost completed, uh, you can read about that in the verses right before. Paul had taken a Nazarite vow. He had seven days in which he completed that. The Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help! This, they're referring to Paul, is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple And he's defiled this holy place, for they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they, notice this word, supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. So here's what's going on. Some unbelieving Jews from Asia saw Paul in the temple, and they went ballistic. Well, we've learned in our study of the book of Acts that Paul spent at least three years in Ephesus where a riot had broken out. And so these unbelieving Jews had traveled to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover or Pentecost. And they're there. There's a whole bunch of people in Jerusalem during this time. They recognize Paul And many of them who were part of that earlier riot think this is our chance to kill Paul. But actually, because of Paul's Jewish background, 
He was allowed to go into the inner court of the temple, but these enemies of the gospel decided to stir up the crowd. That phrase, stirred up, means to confuse the crowd. Now, in our minds, we'd have a hard time relating to this, but there could have been one to two million people in Jerusalem for that feast. Well, we don't have anything like that in our community, except if you were on Brady Street during the start of the Bix, right? I mean, there's like people everywhere. And so they deliberately used misinformation to accomplish their malevolent and murderous plans. Hey, have you noticed there's misinformation flying around today? Anybody ever picked that up? I mean, how do you even know what to believe? Now all you have to do is go online and you're like, well, how can that be true and how can that be true? Did Tom Brady retire or did he not? (laughs) Who knows? Because you can read articles on both sides. Well, according to a recent study, nearly 80% of Americans believe misinformation and disinformation has become a real problem. In the same study, 10% of Americans admit to deliberately, on purpose, sharing fake news. Now, these religious people yell out for help as if Paul's a threat to them, like he's an assailant. And they made three charges against him. Would you note they say Paul was teaching everyone everywhere. Now that's hyperbole for sure. It's a general statement designed to enrage the crowds. Note, they're saying that he's against Jewish people. They're calling him anti-Semitic, which actually is very interesting because Paul was raised Jewish. Secondly, they say that Paul is against the law of God. During the Feast of Pentecost, Feast of Weeks, they celebrated the harvest, but one of the things that was always in the back of their mind is they remembered Moses coming down with the law, and so they were giving a lot of regard for the law during this time, and they're saying that Paul is against the law. And thirdly, they say that Paul's against the temple. Interestingly, that's a similar charge that people made against Jesus. Well, let's take a look at what the temple was like. Herod the Great wanted to be liked by the Jews, so he decided to build them a temple. It was fashioned after Solomon's temple. So Solomon's temple's on the left here. Here's Herod's temple on the right. More than twice the size of Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple had previously been destroyed. This temple was huge. The whole temple mount was the size of 20 football fields. This temple took 40 years to build. And around the temple, holding it up, were 1,000 pillars. Now, the temple had some specific rules about where people could go. Gentiles, if you were non-Jewish, well, you could gather in the outer courtyard for prayer. Women could come closer. They could meet in the court of women. Jewish men could gather in the courtyard of Israel. The priests could enter the holy place and 
the high priest, in just one day of the year, the day of atonement, could go into the holy of holies. And so with that as background, they're charging Paul with defiling the temple. That's similar to the word pollute. And what are they saying about Paul? They're charging Paul with bringing Greeks, non-Jewish people, into the temple, like the inside, the inner workings of the temple courts. This was not true, but they persisted in that false claim. Now, separating the court of the Gentiles from the other courts was a barrier through which no Gentile could pass. It was really a big deal. In fact, archaeologists have unearthed one of these signs. It actually is a stone. Don't you love when archaeology kind of catches up with what we already know to be true? Right? So they, they discovered this. This is what it says. It was, it was written in Latin and Greek so that pagans could read the warning. Here's what it says. No man of alien race is to enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. The Romans, who were in charge, they honored this prohibition, allowing Jews to kill anyone who violated that order. Now, after starting with this general accusation against Paul, notice they get more specific in their charges. They assumed or supposed that because a Greek, his name was Trophimus, was often seen with Paul, well, that Paul must have taken him into the temple. That was not true. But they weren't after truth at that point. They saw this as their chance to finish the job that they had begun in Ephesus. So what do they do? They drag Paul out of the temple through the various courtyards into the courtyard of the Gentiles where it was lawful for them to stone him to death. Let me just pause here and make this observation. Truth is is a scarce commodity in our culture as well. Would you agree with that? Some people simply don't care if something's true. As long as it lines up with their feelings. I came across a sentence which seems to capture our cultural narrative. With feelings being more important than facts, we clamor onto the raft of a captivating story and we paddle to safety more than we assimilate the facts and stand on firm ground. We're living in what could be called postmodernism. It's the prevailing philosophy of our day with the belief that there's no such thing as absolute truth. Rather, truth has become personal, subjective. You have your truth, I'm living my truth, right? But there's, our culture today says no such thing as objective truth. And we go, oh, we lament that. We go, how could people live like that? Uh, But Barna, 
who did a survey of the American church found this out. This is not good news. I like the study I referenced last week that 90% of evangelicals like long sermons. (laughs) Well, here's Barna telling the truth about something else. 53% of born-again believers do not believe in absolute truth. So we just take this room and this halfway, so it'd be all of you over there don't, don't believe in absolute truth. I don't think that stat's true of Edgewood by any means, but here's what I want to say to all that. Build your faith on the facts of the Word of God, not on your feelings. As a new believer, I came across this simple illustration. So I came to Christ at the University of Wisconsin at Madison at 19 years old, and somebody shared this little booklet with me. It was published by Campus Crusade for Christ, now called Crew. And this illustration still plays on the screen of my mind. I share this often here, perhaps even once a year, and I do so because I need the reminder, and my guess is you do as well. So Picture a train on the tracks with the engine representing the facts, the coal car, all right, it's an old illustration, okay? (laughs) The coal car representing our faith and the caboose as our feelings. Well, here's the idea. The idea is not to be led by your feelings, but rather to tell your feelings to listen to the facts. Some of us just say, well, I feel, and then we're off. (laughs) Whatever we feel, we do. If it feels good, we do it. Makes sense to us, we do it. Listen, some of us need to capture those feelings We need to look at them. We need to analyze them. We can say it like this. We need to talk back to our feelings and instead let the faith that we have rooted in the facts of God's word lead our lives. Let me say it like this. Too many of us let our feelings drive the train when the Bible says to let the facts of God's word be the engine of our faith. In over 30 years of ministry, here's one thing I've learned. I'll say it just in one sentence. If you let your feelings run everything, you're going to go off the rails. If you let your feelings run everything, you'll go off the rails. And so friends, God accomplishes his purposes uh, through persecution. Second thing we see from this passage is simply to expect persecution. Verse 30 tells us what happened when this misinformation about Paul was spread. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul. They dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut. Something similar happened to Jesus in the same city. Matthew 21.10, and when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was, here it is, stirred up, saying, who is this? In Acts 16.19, we read that Paul and Silas were seized, grabbed, and thrown into prison. 
Notice how quickly these religious guys shut the temple gates. And we read, and at once the gates were shut. Ironically, they didn't want their persecution of Paul to pollute the temple, so they shut the gates. They probably had this warning from 2 Kings eleven fifteen in mind when a woman named Athalia was murdered. We read this, let her not be put to death in the house of the Lord. Okay, look now at verse 31. As they were seeking to kill him. By the way, this is like first century cancel culture. They're like, we don't like Paul. And we're going to get rid of them. Word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. So the tribune of the cohort was the military officer in charge of special forces located in the fortress of Antonia, which was this tall building with guard towers located next to the northwest corner of the temple. Well, let's take a look. So there's Jerusalem up at the top right. You see the temple and the temple mount. And what I've circled there is the fortress of Antonia. That is military trained soldiers to guard Jerusalem, but specifically any trouble, any riots in the temple area. And this gives a picture of what it looked like on the right. There were like guard towers like you might see at correctional centers in East Moline. I remember in the Pontiac community that we lived in, there's a supermax prison there, and there's guard towers. So picture these guards looking down at this temple area, and everybody's in confusion, and they're dragging out someone. And this fortress housed like 1,000 Roman soldiers who were ready to respond to any riots. By the way, the Jews resented the thought that the Romans would have a tower located adjacent right next to the temple and taller than the temple as well. Well, when the military officer saw what was happening, notice verse 32. It tells us what he did. He at once took soldiers and centurions and he ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So not wasting any time. They got there quickly. He ordered soldiers and centurions to get the crowds to stop beating Paul. Well, I wonder how many soldiers came down. Well, we don't know for sure, but we have a clue. Look at uh, the word centurion. Centurion means someone, an officer in charge of 100 soldiers. Would you observe it's in the plural? So we know at least 200 soldiers are down there. And since we know that, that the, not only the soldiers, but the, 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 the military leader officer is there as well. In verse 33 we read, Then the tribune came up and arrested Paul and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Ah, I wonder if that prophecy from Agabus is coming back to Paul at this point. Remember he said, Paul, you go to Jerusalem. He took Paul's belt, took it off Paul, 
and then bound his ankles and his hands and said, the owner of this belt, when he goes to Jerusalem, that's going to happen to him. So that's now happened to him. Well, like the mayhem guy from the Allstate commercials, things are chaotic. Things are busting loose. Verse 14 says, some in the crowd were shouting one thing. Others were shouting other things. Because there's so much noise and confusion, this Roman military officer ordered him to be brought into the barracks, into the barracks located right there. Well, let's pick up what happened next. I'm in verse 35. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers. Why? Because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him. Well, that makes, it, makes us think of something that happened just like 30 years earlier when another crowd turned on Jesus Christ in this same vicinity. Luke 23, 18, they all cried out together. Here it is, same phrase. Away with this man and release to us Barabbas. Oh, brothers and sisters, we don't like to hear this, but Jesus predicted that problems and persecution would come to his followers. We could say it like this. Jesus didn't preach the prosperity gospel. He preached the persecution gospel. Listen then, words of Jesus, Luke 21, 12. But before all this, they'll lay their hands on you and they'll persecute you. Delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, you'll be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. John 15, 20, if they persecuted me, he's looking right at his disciples, they will persecute you. 1 Thessalonians 3, 3 and 4, that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. 2 Timothy 3, 12. Oh, this is so clear. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It doesn't say some will. It says all will be persecuted. You know, many Christ followers today are persecuted and mistreated. Listen to what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 4.13. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things, the garbage of all things. According to the Open Doors watch list over this past year, 360 million Christians lived in places where they experienced high levels of persecution and discrimination. In 2021, nearly 4,000 believers were abducted. 
We spent time praying for 18 of those who were abducted in Haiti. They've since been released. 4,000 abducted around the world just last year. And 5,898 were killed for their faith. For the first time in many years, North Korea is now number two as the place that perse- that where persecution is the worst. Now, it's Afghanistan. Well, you know why, right? The Taliban has lists, names of Christians and where they live. How would you like that? It doesn't mean North Korea is getting any better, but it shows us how bad things are in Afghanistan. And I think of our, our news, you know, whenever we hear news, we should be thinking, how does this affect Christians? So there's a lot of concern about what may happen in Ukraine and what Russia may do. I think it's important for us to consider that there are missionaries in Ukraine and there are Christ followers there as well. Let me see if I can put it in more perspective because all these numbers, it's like, okay, that's a lot, but I can't get my hand around it. All right, here's one. One in seven global Christians faced persecution in 2021 and an average of 16 of our brothers and sisters in Christ, 16 a day were killed for their faith. This week I went back and reread the sermon that I preached on November 16 and 17, 2019. We were right here in this space. We were celebrating the completion of our renovation project. And on that weekend, here's what we heard. On this dedication weekend, when we celebrate God's faithfulness and worthiness, I want to call us to persevere even when persecution comes, and it will, because when Christianity collides with culture, there will always be fallout. Let me bring this even closer to home for us If you were here two weeks ago on Sanctity of Life weekend, we walked through the opening chapter of the book of Genesis. And one of the verses says that you and I are made in the image of God and that God made us male and female. He made us. Okay. That same weekend, a pastor was preaching on that same passage his sermons are on youtube like ours are and youtube pulled his sermon off calling it hate speech friends it's happening now it's going to get worse in our culture now before leaving this point i want to mention two things about the apostle paul that might not come to our minds number one god did give paul more than he could handle You know, we like quoting that phrase. It kind of sounds good. It's not biblical. God will never give you more than you can handle. Uh, Yeah, he will. And since when does God call you to be tough anyway and handle stuff? No, we're to admit we can't handle things. 
Listen, God will give us more than we can handle, but he'll never give us more than he can handle in our lives. Listen to the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8. He suffered such extreme pressure and persecution, he wanted to end it all. Is that the Paul in your mind? He writes this, We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. And secondly, Paul felt deserted by everyone but God. Paul was stoned, he was beaten, he was imprisoned, he was shipwrecked, he was betrayed. Often he went without food and without shelter. When he was in prison, shortly before he died, one of his best friends, Demas, left the faith and started living like the world. Alexander, someone else who was close to him, Paul said this, this is like some of his closing words, Alexander did me a great deal of harm. This is how Paul writes, this is the end of his life. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. And yet God comforted him. By the way, I trust that you're uh, striving to read the Bible every day. And if you're uh, having some struggle with that, uh, let me recommend the Edgewood Bible Reading Plan. One of the reasons I like it is we reboot it every month. So if you start off the year strong, you go, uh, well, we have a new one coming out in February. It's now available. It's at both resource uh, centers. You can also get it on the app. I want you just to hear what Pastor Tim said in the introduction to this next month's Bible reading plan. We'll be reading First and Second Peter and the book of Exodus. Here's what Tim wrote. Though we would prefer to not have difficulties in life, God never promises us this path. He does, however, promise to give us the necessary resources. Friends, let's endure, circumstance, endure misunderstandings. Let's expect persecution, but let's not stop there. Let's make sure that we look for ways to leverage the gospel because God accomplishes his purposes through persecution. Number three, embrace gospel opportunities. Fascinating what Jesus said to the disciples after promising them persecution. Well, let's look at it, but before all this, they will lay their hands on you and they'll persecute you. They'll deliver you up to the synagogues and prisons. You'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Now listen to the very next verse. This, what's the this? All this persecution will be your opportunity to bear witness. We're going to see more of that next weekend, but let's learn how Paul laid the groundwork for a gospel presentation. I'm in verses 37 through 40 if you want to follow along. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, this military officer, "Uh, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, 
Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people, and when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying. You'll have to come back next week to hear what he said. (laughs) So all of that, Paul's laying the groundwork for what we will study next weekend. But I see six guidelines that can help us in our own evangelism. (laughs) Number one, be courteous and respectful. Listen, even though Paul was pummeled, he was put in shackles, he was roughed up, would you note he doesn't tear into the officer. Instead, he turns to him and he's like, "Uh, may I say something to you? And by asking permission to speak, he's demonstrating humility and deference. Makes me think of 1 Peter 3.15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the hope that is in you. Always be ready, comma, but do it with gentleness and respect. Second thing we learn from Paul is good to ask questions. Paul didn't lead with a statement, but rather with a question which invited an answer. He did that in a similar way when he was seeing the Ethiopian who was on a chariot, riding on a chariot, and he was reading the book of Isaiah. I love that passage. He was reading Isaiah chapter 53, which talks about the substitutionary death of Jesus. And so, Paul, or Philip, the way he, I'm sorry, it's Philip, not Paul. Philip, hearing the Ethiopian read from the book of Isaiah, simply asked him a question, Acts 8.30. Do do you understand what you're reading? (laughs) The Ethiopian's like, "Uh, no, I don't have a clue. Paul climbs up into the chariot, ends up leading him to faith in Christ. Christ. Friends, it's always a good idea to follow the model of Jesus and ask people questions. It helps them think in new ways. It may expose some contradictions in their own thought patterns. Rebecca Pippard, in her book, Out of the Salt Shaker, uh, says this, that good evangelism is 60% asking questions. Well, in this instance, the officer responded by asking two questions, which led to clarity Watch this, regarding some false assumptions that he had made about Paul. You see, when Paul spoke, he realized Paul was not a commoner, but a well-educated person who spoke Greek. You see, up until then, he thought Paul was this Egyptian leader of an anti-Roman revolutionary group. Number three. Clear up misconceptions. Do you know it's highly likely the person you are witnessing to has some misconceptions about you? They may think you believe things that when you hear him or her say, you'd be like, what? You know, sometimes people go, well, you know, what is, what's a Baptist? Aren't they weird? I just say, yeah. <laughs> Come and join us. People have misconceptions. Listen to what Paul said. This is how he clears it up. Verse 39. I am a Jew 
from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. Paul was Jewish by background, Roman by citizen, Greek by culture, and a Christian through the new birth. And as a Jew, listen, he's clarifying something. He had every right to be in the temple. And the town of Tarsus, well, that had a great reputation. Paul's like, I'm from there. That was a place known for commerce and culture and scholarship. One of the three leading universities in the world was located there. Paul was a citizen there, meaning he was not a rebel. Notice next, he invites a response. Because Paul had already demonstrated respect, he's granted permission to speak to all the people after asking this question. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. He's inviting a response. Next, get people's attention. When speaking with someone, it's important to try and keep their attention. Paul did it in verse 40 by motioning with his hand to the people. I don't know how he did it. If he's just kind of like this and everybody got quiet and we read it must have worked. I'm going to try that sometimes. <laughs> there was like a great hush came over the people. And then finally, speak the language of the heart. Fascinating. Paul knew Greek, perhaps Latin. That's what the Romans spoke. But in verse 40, he addressed them in the what? Hebrew language. Now that's likely a dialect, likely Aramaic. That's a common language based on Hebrew spoken by Palestinian Jews and Jesus himself. So by using this dialect, he connected with them and he showed he respected their culture. So we've been learning how God accomplishes his purposes through persecution. It was interesting, in reflecting on this passage and preparing to study it, last Saturday, Pastor Ed and I uh, attended the Keep Believing Ministries board meeting. We usually drive to Chicago early on a Saturday, come back late on Saturday afternoon before the service, but last Saturday, we had the meeting by Zoom. And Pastor Ray led a devotional from the book of Ephesians. And by the way, Ray's teaching an online class on that book, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday each week. You can get to that on YouTube or on the Keep Believing website. Here's what Ray shared. He was in Ephesians 3.1. It ties right into this. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of, does it say Rome? a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. Here's what Ray said, very insightful. Remember when Paul wrote those words, he was under house arrest in Rome. He never says, I'm a prisoner of Rome, though he could have said that. He calls himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He didn't deserve to be there. His imprisonment was completely unfair. How could he still say he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus? Perspective makes all the difference. When hard times come, Ray says, be a student, not a victim. Paul's not a victim because he sees God's hand in everything. Do we understand that great principle? Nothing happens to us apart from God. 
Ray says, you are where you are right now in every part of your life, in every situation you are facing because God wants you there. Because if God wanted you somewhere else, you'd be somewhere else. It's a lot easier to bloom where you're planted if you like the soil and garden where you are. Or you may say, I'm stuck in manure. Ray says, well, bloom there. Grow there. Don't waste your days dreaming you were somewhere else. Then he ends this way. Paul could do more in prison than he could out of it at that moment. He reminds us, Paul wrote four books that we have in our Bibles from prison. It's not wrong to want to be out of prison, but seize the day where you are. If you feel like you're in prison, don't complain about the chains. Jesus put you where you are. Makes me think of Genesis 50, verse 20. Joseph had been wronged by his brothers. Oh man, he was really wronged by them. And now they're looking at him. He realizes who they are. They know what they've done to Joseph and they're nervous. Joseph says these words, as for you, he's speaking to his brothers, you meant evil against me. And they did. Notice next. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. All right. Let's now pick up the story of Aggie. The baby born in the Congo Aggie is now a young wife. One day, a Swedish religious magazine appeared in her mailbox. She couldn't read the words, but as she turned the pages, a photo stopped her cold. There in a primitive setting was a grave with a white cross with the name of her mother, Sevilla Flood. A translator summarized the story about missionaries who had come to a village long ago. The birth of a white baby, that was her. The death of the young mother, that was her mother. The one little African boy who had been led to Christ. And how after the whites had all left, the boy had grown up and finally persuaded the chief to let him build a school in the village. The article said that gradually he won all his students to Christ. Those children led their parents to Christ. Even the chief had become a Christian. The article went on to say today there were 600 Christian believers in that one village, all because of the sacrifice of David and Sophia Flood. Years later, Aggie sought to find her real father, who was now living in Sweden, an older man now. David Flood had remarried, fathered four more children, and generally dissipated his life with alcohol. He'd recently suffered a stroke. He was still bitter, He had one rule in his family, and all the family knew it. Here's the rule. Never mention the name of God because God took everything from me. Well, Aggie was not to be deterred. 
She walked into his squalid apartment with bottles of alcohol everywhere and approached the 73-year-old man lying in a rumpled bed. Papa, she said tentatively. He turned and he began to cry. Anna, he said, I never, I never meant to give you away. It's all right, Papa, she replied. Taking him gently in her arms, God took care of me. The man instantly stiffened and said, God forgot all of us. Our lives have been like this because of him. And then he turned his back to the wall, turned his face back to the wall. Aggie stroked his face, and she continued and said, Papa, I've got a little story to tell you, and it's a true one. You didn't go to Africa in vain. Mama didn't die in vain. The little boy you won to the Lord grew up to win that whole village to Jesus Christ. The one seed you planted just kept growing and growing. And today there are 600 African people serving the Lord because you were faithful to the call of God in your life. And then she said these words, Papa, Jesus loves you. He has never hated you. The old man turned to look into his daughter's eyes. His body relaxed. He began to talk, and by the end of the afternoon, he had come back to the God he had resented for so many decades. Within a few weeks, David Flood had gone into eternity. A few years later, Aggie attended a large evangelism conference in London. At that conference, a report was given from Congo, so it was called Congo and then Zaire and now Congo again, by the superintendent of the national church. This superintendent represented over, get this, over 100,000 baptized believers. So he's giving a report. He spoke eloquently of the gospel spread in his nation. Afterwards, Aggie went up to him and asked if he had ever heard of David and Svea Flood. Yes, madame, the man replied in French, his words translated into English. It was Svea Flood who led me to Jesus Christ. I was the boy who brought chickens and eggs to your parents before you were born. In fact, to this day, your mother's grave and memory are honored by all of us. And then he continued and he said, you must come to Africa to see because your mother is the most famous person in our history. In time, that's exactly what Aggie did. The most dramatic moment was when the pastor escorted Aggie to see her mother's white cross for herself. She knelt in the soil to pray and give thanks. Later that day in the church, the pastor read these words from John 12, 24. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. 
He followed that up with Psalm 126, verse 5. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. That true story, I don't even like calling it a story because it implies it's not true. That true narrative was written by Randy Elkhorn. He based that on an excerpt from the book Aggie, the inspiring story of a girl without a country. And we thought you might want a copy of that. If you're on Facebook, go to my wall or the Edgewood Facebook page. We also have hard copies out at the Welcome Center. So here's a question for us. No matter what situation you were in today, what soul will you sow the seed of the gospel in this week? See, when you're in a dark place, it's easy to think you've been buried. Perhaps you've been planted. It's time to bloom. See, God accomplishes his purposes through persecution. And when persecution becomes personal for you, and it will, and it will for me too, hold on to these three truths. Endure misunderstandings, expect persecution, and embrace the gospel opportunities. Would you stand? God, your word is alive, it's active, and we've heard it now, we've seen it with our eyes. And So Holy Spirit, take your word, apply it to our lives where we need encouragement to keep going in tough places. Lord, may you by your spirit enable us to do that. Lord, we're reminded again of the value of cross-cultural ministry, the value of missions. Keep us focused not only on our neighbors, but on the nations. We're also reminded of the value of a child and how the gospel in a child can transform his or her life and transform so many others as well. Lord, there may be someone who's engaging online or here in this room who's yet to put their faith and trust in you. Lord, may today be their day of salvation as they repent of their sins, turn from how they've been living, and trust in the finished, final, full sacrifice of Jesus who atoned for all of our sins when he died on the cross and rose again on the third day. Lord, now as we scatter from this place, use us as we live on mission all over this community, starting in the homes, apartments, dorm rooms we live in. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.